Hello and welcome to Professional AF. Thank you so much for deciding to spend part of your day with me. Almost a year ago, I started this journey to improve all kinds of things about myself and finding more and more that in order to get the kind of personal and professional growth that I'm looking for, I need to understand all these topics that are complete blind spots to me. And today's show was a big learning lesson for me. Did you know that every interaction that you have with somebody releases chemicals in their brain? And if you can release the right chemicals, you can increase trust, cooperation, performance in significant ways. My guide for this insight today was Paul Zak. Paul's two decades of research have taken him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforests of New Guinea. His latest book, The Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies, uses neuroscience to measure and manage organizational cultures to inspire teamwork and accelerate business outcomes. His 2012 book, The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity, recounted his unlikely discovery of the neurochemical oxytocin, which we're going to cover a lot in this episode, as the key driver of trust, love, and morality that distinguish our humanity. Here are the specs. Paul is the founding director of the Center of Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. He has degrees in mathematics and economics from San Diego State University, a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania, and postdoc training in neuroimaging from Harvard. Paul's research in oxytocin and relationships has earned him the nickname Dr. Love, and he's all about adding more love to the world. Paul and I are going to talk about small things that anybody can do to create more trust, what you can do if you're not the leader, but you want to increase trust, how long it takes to actually create a culture of trust, why over half of all change management initiatives fail the business case for increasing trust in your company, and why the way most companies do annual performance reviews damages culture and trust. Before I get to the interview, I just want to encourage you to subscribe to the show and give it a review wherever you listen. You don't need to write anything up. Just click the number of stars and you're done. Seems like almost no effort for you, but it means a lot to people who are considering the show for the very first time. As always, thank you for going on this journey with me. Here is my conversation with Paul Zach. Paul Zach, welcome to the show. Excited to chat with you. Thanks, Diana. First, can you please tell me what neuroeconomics is? Right. So I know that you have never made a bad decision in your life, but your brother-in-law who bought investment real estate in 2007, when you told him the uh, market was in a bubble, what's the deal with that? So if we have such big brains, how can we make poor decisions? So neuroeconomics measures productivity while people make decisions in order to understand how those decisions are made and ultimately to help people make better decisions. And you have kind of specialized in studying oxytocin. Is that right? In the field of neuroeconomics? That's right. So I was the first scientist to show that oxytocin had behavioral effects on humans. So um, just for the listeners, oxytocin is a brain chemical that traditionally was associated with birth and breastfeeding in women. Uh, But what we showed starting about 20 years ago is that Oxytocin is a key signal in the brain that tells us that those around us appear to be safe or trustworthy, and it has a lot of interesting behavioral effects. It um, increases our desire to work on the behalf of others, increases our sense of empathy, so we we are able to share the emotions of others, and is a potent uh, uh, motivator for effective teamwork. 
And I, I love how you test for oxytocin. You give people blood tests before an activity or something happens, and then you give them a blood test after to see how much oxytocin was created. That's right. So that's the gold standard is really looking at that change. Right? There's, there's no signal processing. You know, either oxytocin went up or didn't go up. And, and we found over these 20 years of research that uh, for most healthy individuals, and we can certainly talk about non-healthy individuals, um, basically any activity you do in a group that's a positive activity, uh, dancing, singing, uh, working together on a project at work, um, all those will release oxytocin. And so um, it, it essentially is the, uh, the kind of juice for effective teamwork. And, you know, until I read your book, I never thought about my interactions with others through the lens of, I wonder if I release the right chemicals in their brain through this interaction. But now that I've read the book, it's all I can think about. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and I think about hacking the system, so we can certainly talk about that. So um, one of the things we showed, um, as I'm sure you know from the book, uh, many years ago is that touch releases oxytocin. And so as an experiment on myself, because I'm a Martian, I'm trying to understand humans, um, I decided what would happen if instead of shaking hands, I started hugging people. And people's face lit up, they connected to me better. And so that's a simple hack to induce the brains of people around you to release oxytocin. There's lots of other hacks we could talk about. But um, for me, as a kind of introverted, uh, nerdy scientist type, um, yeah, I just say, oh, I, I hug everybody. And <laughs> people are you know, both amazed and usually happy. And um, yeah, it's a great hack to um, make that interaction more effective immediately. You call oxytocin the moral molecule and that it makes people good or not good. H how does this show up at work for us? Yeah, very good point. So um, I think uh, a, a bunch of ways. Um, one is that um, you know, culture uh, is certainly a big topic in business. Um, so culture is a set of uh, implicit norms of behavior. And those norms are often set by the founders or by the leaders of organization. And I think in the traditional view, um, maybe, you know, pre-1970s, it was very much a fear-based uh, approach, right? There's, there's a hierarchy. I'm your boss. I'm telling you what to do. Um, and that fear-based approach is, is very effective short-term, but long-term, um, we acclimate to fear. So this is any, any new thing you've done, you know, skiing, uh, skydiving, uh, whatever that thing is, the first time, a couple times you do it, super scary. And then you get better and better at it. And so the same thing happens with fear at work. So it's a very poor long-term motivator. Um, but what we've shown in, in just numerous studies and businesses is that if you have a culture of cooperation, of help, of gratitude, uh, then you can create a culture in which colleagues at work are releasing oxytocin uh, continually in each other, and that increases the sense of connection to each other. As I said earlier, the desire to work on the organization's behalf and uh, substantially increases productivity and profits. And so, yeah, do you want to work in a place where people are yelling at each other and screaming and throwing stuff or to work in a place where people say, hey, Dana, you're wonderful. I wonder if you could help me with this project. Why? Wow, I'd really appreciate it. Where you're being recognized really as a full human being and not as a piece of human capital. So I don't know where human capital came from, but it's awful. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm not a machine. I'm a human. I got emotions. I got a personal life. Well, this is a personal question for me, as I'm, as I'm studying more about all these things that happen in your brain, I just want an expert to help explain to me the difference between dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. I hear all of these all the time, and they're all different. Right. So why do I need to know the difference? But not unrelated, okay. right? So uh, let's start with dopamine. So that's uh, a key uh, chemical 
that orients you towards things that are could be valuable to you. So any new information, um, when a cute guy or girl walks by, uh, flowers, so anything that, that could be valuable to you, your brain orients you to this. So, you know, this, is something, this is something new in your environment. You should pay attention to it. And so this is the chemical that uh, drugs of abuse like methamphetamine and cocaine uh, increase millionfold uh, in the brain. So uh, the brain basically rewards you for uh, looking for new information. So that's important. Um, oxytocin, again, is this kind of key uh, indicator that um, someone in your environment uh, uh, is worth interacting with. It's safe enough to interact with. Um, so again, as social creatures, we need to have an underlying uh, brain architecture that motivates social interaction because we can create value from those uh, social relationships. Um, so what's interesting here is that um, oxytocin induces the brain to make more dopamine. So all of a sudden now I have this, so I, I see you and I say, oh, uh, Diana looks like a really interesting person to talk to. So I start chatting with you. That's oxytocin release. You seem safe, but motivates me to approach you. And now if you reciprocate, you're like, oh yeah, there's an interesting project we're working on. Um, that's great. My brain also releases dopamine that says, oh, this could be valuable experience. So I'm going to reward you for being a good social creature. This is where the kind of moral part of oxytocin comes in. So if you play nice with Diana, she's likely to play nice with you, and there's a big win-win space there. And then has the brain do that? Because it's always a little scary to interact with people we don't know, sometimes with people we do know. Um, also, oxytocin induces the brain to make um, uh, serotonin, and that has a little mood lift. So serotonin is calming in the brain. So um, let's leave the endorphins out for now. So okay. there's this circuit I call the human oxytocin-mediated empathy circuit that motivates us to behave in most times properly with other people. Does that make sense? Yes. So we want to create as much oxytocin in the people that we work with as possible, right? And I've heard one of your quotes in other interviews say that it's not something you can create in yourself. You can only give it as a gift to other people. Correct. Yeah, which is interesting, right? So um, uh, someone's going to start this kind of positive feedback loop in which um, I'm approaching you in a safe uh, way and you want to interact with me because there's a value in cooperating with something. So, um, so oxytocin is responsive to social uh, stimuli, positive social stimuli. That is, it's a, it's, it doesn't initiate a response to it. So someone's got to make that first step. And so, yeah, think about that as a gift. So specifically, we've shown that giving gifts causes the release of oxytocin. So if I want to, uh, you know, we, we know this from Valentine's Day and birthdays. And if you want to, uh, you know, build a relationship with someone, you, you, sh you should reach out. So someone's got to start that positive process. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, so, you know, think of an interaction with somebody, uh, sorry, I'm going to go math on you a little bit, as a kind of, you know, coding it as a one or a zero. So one means it's positive and zero means that wasn't so good. So think of that positive relationship with somebody uh, or trusting that person as lots of ones. So that ones are happening over and over and over. Occasionally I get a zero. So why would we have a, a, a non-positive interaction or a negative interaction? Well, it could be that I'm having a bad day. I'm super stressed. So high levels of stress inhibit the release of oxytocin. Um, so that's one example of it. Um, high levels of testosterone inhibit oxytocin. So now we have some interesting gender conversations. Um, so remember, oxytocin increases empathy. So who are the least empathic people on the planet? Teenage boys. <laughs> I used to be, and, and you've seen. Yeah. 
um, and so I can tell you an evolutionary story about why that uh, you know could be value from an evolutionary perspective. But it means when you have say younger men at work, you're not going to expect them to be as good um, cooperators. They're going to be more selfish um, because they're essentially testosterone poison. And testosterone makes it all about me. Makes me think I'm a little god. And by the way, it happens in women too. So as as you uh, advance in your career, the more social status you have, the more uh, testosterone both men and women make. The women have testosterone as well. So you get a big raise, you get uh, hired as CEO, um, your testosterone will go up. Now, men have five to ten times more than women, so the sort of uh, selfishness, um, self-interested behavior is a little more obvious in men, but it happens in women as, women as well. So what should you do if you're a leader and you want to create a high oxytocin, safe, high-trust environment? You can suppress that, so st- slow it down. So again, these oxytocin-testosterone responses are rapid. They're in evolutionarily old parts of the brain. But if you slow down your knee-jerk reaction to say that person in front of you is a jerk or um, be short with somebody, um, just you know, think of that for five seconds before you say it. You can inhibit that response. So we can train ourselves to be more self-aware of how our interactions have an impact on others. And I think as a good leader, we want to certainly do that. I never thought about it in chemical terms, but now that I've read the book and this conversation, it, it makes a lot of sense. When we feel the greatest about ourselves, it inhibits our connection with others. And so we have to work extra hard to get that connection or that oxytocin. Yeah, and and it can be done, right? And so um, there are situations in which you don't want that cooperative uh, response, right, in a crisis uh, when a decision has to be made right away. So if you're a leader and we've got to do this thing now, um, that's not really a time to, uh, you know, poll your colleagues on, hey, what do you you guys think we should do in this situation? Um, So I'm a a, a sailor, so in a sailboat, uh, every once in a while there's some crisis and the person at the helm, of that boat's got to make a decision, and he or she, uh, you know, lives could be at risk, right? So you got to do something rapidly. Don't have time, and that's that, you know, high arousal, dopamine, testosterone response. I'm going to do this thing now. It may not be right, but I could do it now. There's something bad happens. But normally on a sailboat and in an organization, we have time to aggregate information from all those brains around us. And yet, if you live in this sort of high testosterone world where it's all about me, I'm a sort of a little demigod and I can't make a mistake, you're going to make a mistake because you're not drawing on all those brains around you or you're inhibiting them. They're afraid of telling you what they really think. Um, so, so we're getting really back to creating an effective workplace environment that's consistent with our neuroanatomy. And from all the work we've done, that looks like a much more horizontal structure, a much more uh, cooperative structure. So the opposite of the classic um, GE yank and rank, right, where uh, under Jack Welch, you know, the bottom 20% on the annual review got fired at GE. So uh, even Jack Welch has said recently that was a bad idea. Uh, GE doesn't do it anymore. Google did it in early days, stopped doing it. So uh, it it pits uh, employees against each other. That's not what we want. We want everyone pulling in the same direction. Well, that's kind of my next question. Before we get into how to create trust on a team, I want you to tell me what false trust looks like. I mean, it's pretty easy to see like a dysfunctional team where nobody's getting along, but I feel like what happens most of the time is that teams are non-confrontational, super polite, but not really performing at the level where they could be. So what is going on there at a, I guess, chemical level? 
Yeah. So part of that is is this fear-based approach, right? So um, for some reason, uh, when we're adults, we don't get to make mistakes. As children, we always say, oh, mistakes are great, honey. You, know, you can learn from that. No worries. Uh, you know, that's why you're in school. But once you're an adult and at work, then, you know, we're in this sort of zero-mistake world. But mistakes are a great learning experience. So particularly where I live in California, in the tech world uh, and, and the startups that I've been involved in, um, you want to explore, you want to make mistakes. So I think it's creating an environment where you can try things, you can explore areas, um, you want to have really clear transparency, you don't want to make a catastrophic mistake, but experiment. Uh, I think that's much more in the kind of agile development world that um, certainly a lot of uh, companies in the technology world live in. And that's going to have a certain cultural environment to flourish. If it's um, uncomfortable or um, comfortable is not so bad. If if you feel like you're going to get, you know, your your um, butt you doubt, um, you know, because you've uh, uh, you, you know wasted a week on something, that's okay. So, if, for example, in in uh, Silicon Valley, it's very common to have congratulations, you screwed up celebrations every month. So we're going to get pizza and beer after work, and we're going to talk about the biggest screw up we made this month. But why would you do that? Because you're facilitating a discussion that says. We are experimenting. We are trying to get better. We're trying to innovate. And you can't innovate without making mistakes. So if you're in a no-mistakes world, you're also in a no-innovation world. So um, having enough uh, mistake-making means I'm going to discover some innovations. And again, from a supervisory perspective, I want to monitor those experiments and make sure they don't you know, really go south fast. Right? You want to do some risk mitigation on how much experimenting you're doing. Um, but I think it's a wonderful thing to, to really empower individuals to use their passion, their, their experience, their energy to try something new. I did not used to trust people who got enough vegetables in their daily diet, <laughs> uh, but I've really changed the way I eat as I've gotten older. Man, are we in love with Balance the Superfood Shot? It is a small shot that provides half your daily fruits and vegetable servings. 90% of Americans do not eat the daily recommended servings of fruits and vegetables. 90%. Yeah, that was me for 90% of my life. <laughs> I have a, a confession to make, which is that I actually really like these things and I really like the taste. And there have been days where I have probably gotten over half of my daily allowance of vegetables from actual regular vegetables, and I still... You still take the shot? Yeah. I love the Balanced Food Shots so much that I'm now sending a sample pack of them as a thank you gift for anybody who hires me to speak. I just want to share this love with everyone. I know I just came back from a trip, and I had some good friends that I was seeing, and I got out a superfood shot for all of us, and with breakfast, we all clinked our shots and... Uh, enjoyed half of our daily needs of fruits and vegetables. It's kind of a mom thing to do to like when people hire you to just send them something. <laughs> fruits and vegetables. To get them to <laughs> eat their vegetables. Balanced Superfood Shot is shelf stable. So I don't need to ship them in any kind of refrigerated containers. I could keep it in my backpack uh, whenever I travel. It's, it's very easy uh, to travel with. And there are three flavors, the foundation blend, that's their original blend. It's my favorite. It's green. Um, there's an immunity blend that features edelberry and a thousand percent of your daily vitamin C. And then there's the turmeric blend that features turmeric and helps your body maintain a healthy inflammation response. Just go to superfoodshot.co and enter Diana as your discount code. That's superfoodshot.co and enter Diana 
I just want you guys to type Diana in every website that you go to and hope for a percentage off. But you get 30% off at superfoodshot.co. So this episode is about trust. And one of the things that NBKC Bank has done in order to earn your trust is put a whole part of their website up that is aimed just at professional AF listeners and what you're looking for. If you want to release some oxytocin today, just go to nbkc.com slash Diana and find out why NBKC has everything you need and nothing that you don't, including no minimum balance fees, no money pass ATM fees, no foreign transaction fees, no overdraft or insufficient funds fees, no stop payment fees, no incoming domestic wire fees. We're not the only ones that have noticed that NBKC really values their client relationships. They've been written about by all kinds of online uh, magazines, periodicals, and some of the articles that they've been included in are uh, best online checking accounts in 2019 by the Penny Hoarder, best online banks for savings and checking accounts, best high interest checking accounts of 2019, best online banks for your money in 2019 by the College Investor. My favorite is that this thing called Nerd Wallet, which I didn't know what that was, but that's an awesome name. And they said they're ideal for those seeking an online experience with personal support, which now that I know what oxytocin is, sounds like the kind of thing that would release oxytocin. Yes, absolutely. And the thing that will really uh, help you trust the bank and release some good chemicals is if you sign up for an account at nbkc.com slash Diana, you get a free box of stuff, including some professional AF stuff that has been handpicked by the awesome folks at NBKC just for you opening an account. NBKC is an equal housing lender and member FDIC. And to find out where all this awesome stuff is and more articles that may pique your interest, nbkc.com slash Diana. So I'm putting together a team. I've just been assigned a new role and I get to assemble a team and I get to create the kind of culture that I want. And if you're advising me, what do I do with that team uh, to set it up for success and for high performance in a way that releases a, a lot of oxytocin on the team? Yes. Yeah, so it's really uh, building a high trust culture. Uh, so we've identified kind of eight key components uh, that uh, organizations can do that sustain high levels of trust. And I should say, trust does not mean you're not accountable. It's just the opposite. If I empower you to um, make decisions, I get you know high ownership from you, but it also means you're absolutely accountable for what you've done, and we've got to be transparent about what the goals are. So, um, so the first is really being clear about that, that if I'm going to give you discretion over how you execute projects, then you're going to be accountable for what happens. Accountable doesn't mean you get fired, but it means you've got to make better decisions. You've got to share that with others. Again, one reason for that uh, congratulations, you screwed up celebration is also to share what didn't work so other people don't do it. So that's the kind of level of transparency. So clear transparency, uh, the leadership should be very clear about what milestones are, if we're hitting them, um, you know, following up. So it's really kind of a coaching model or a shared leadership model that seems to be the most effective. Um, as I said earlier, one of the things that inhibits oxytocin release is high levels of stress. And so we want to have moderate stress. So I want to challenge you. That's that's what causes you to draw on your social resources. Uh, focus very clearly on um, you know, hitting those milestones, hitting those goals. But I don't want to push this over into chronic stress where you're working 14 hours a day and you're not sleeping at night and you're drinking and you know all kinds of bad things are happening. So um, it's really modulating that level of stress. Uh, so uh, one takeaway from this could be is 
is the brain is in, in a very real anatomical sense like a muscle. So when you work out, you need time to recover. So the brain needs the same thing too. So really creating challenges for employees, giving them discretion to execute as they see fit, but getting lots of feedback, feedback from colleagues, feedback from supervisors, sharing that broadly, and then being clear on not only what the goals are, but why those are the goals. So human beings that we've shown in experiments, but uh, will not surprise you, are much more motivated when they know why they're doing something. So oftentimes in organizations, uh, you know, the leadership will come and say, we have this new program, we're going to do X. And everyone's like, uh, okay, I, I guess I guess so. With the, so now contrast that with a high-trust organization where before we make this decision at the town hall meeting, we say, look, here's a problem we're having, um, job turnover or absenteeism or whatever that is, and we want to address that. We want to make your life, you employees' lives better because you're the ones who create value for the organization, right? You're frontline people. Um, so we think if uh, absenteeism is too high, we're not doing something right as an organization, so we want to address that. What do you guys think is the cause? So first start by listening, and then uh, again, from a leadership perspective, aggregate that information, again, make a decision and say, okay, we've talked to you guys, here's what we've learned, and here's our plan to address the absenteeism problem. Um, we're going to try this uh, for the next six months and see how it works. So I think any program change is necessarily an experiment. No one knows for sure if things will work. And so if you, you as a leader craft it that way, you know, we listened to you, we did analyses, we thought a lot about this problem, and here's the way we're going to address it. Um, then it's very employee-centric. Then it's about um, making life, life better for employees and allowing them to uh, be more productive. And when you're more productive, as you know, you're also happier at work. So you enjoy the job more when you're making progress. So I really, I think it's creating that underlying environment and measuring, I guess, the answer to the other thing. Um, you know, we create an online measurement tool people can use for free. And first of all, just assess trust in your organization and the components, these eight components that create trust. And um, I think it's a key leverage point. Sorry for the very long answer to that great question. No, no, no. I mean, you just described the opposite of how most organizations roll out <laughs> new initiatives. Exactly right, because we're busy and we have to make a decision fast. And that's not the way social creatures work. Again, if you're in a hierarchy, uh, if you're a chimpanzee, uh, you know, the, the strongest uh, male is going to beat everyone up and make them do what he wants to do uh, until they can depose him. So do you want to live in that world where I'm just waiting for that that leader to get fired? You know, I've worked in places like that. I'm sure you have, too, where you're like, oh, my God, this person's got to go. Like, I just, you know, or I got to go. Like, I just can't take this. The screaming boss, the the inconsistent boss, the political game. So I, in my organizations, I want everyone pulling the same direction. I want leadership totally in line with people on the front lines. we got to be clear about what those goals are, how we measure them. And then again, we want to empower some mistakes. So, and, and it's those little incremental changes that we find, those positive deviations from the status quo that are innovations. And so let's continually innovate. Okay. So I'm like back to me starting a team. So just to like restate what I think you're saying. The first thing, if we have a three-year big project that we're trying to do, I should break it up into smaller chunks so that we're not just endlessly working for three years. Is that right? Yes, exactly right. So clear milestones. So three years is a lifetime from the brain's perspective. So it's really looking at three to six-month goals and then breaking that up into weekly goals. So I love the daily, the stand-up daily huddle. So um, in, in my group, uh, you know, we do uh, weekly all-hands meetings 
But then every day I do the five minutes and a puddle. And for that, I use three questions. What did you guys do yesterday? What are your goals today? How can I help you reach those goals? So let's just stay on top of that every day and make sure that we're moving towards those milestones. And they're all going to be hit, but we should have that conversation. Um, so um, my office, I have no desk. I guess we have shared desks. I don't have a dedicated desk or office. I'm moving all the time. I'm the helper. I'm the problem solver. I'm the motivator. I'm the cheerleader. Right. I'm doing all those things um, so that the people who are going to creating value are empowered to make decisions. And boy, don't you have this too? Don't you love it when someone who works with you, not for you, with you, um, you know, you you uh, email them and you say, um, "Gosh, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about doing this thing, and I think we should really do it." They go, "Oh, yeah, we did that last week." <laughs> like, oh, they they didn't even ask me; they just realized it was important and got it done. So that's that high trust, high motivation environment. Um, you know, empower people to be their own bosses. So this, this comes out right out of Peter Drucker, by the way. And yeah, as you know, in my book, there's a lot of Peter Drucker in there. Uh, and, and I, uh, you know, worked at, in, at Claremont Graduate University with Peter for 10 years before he passed away. So Peter said, in the 60s, he said, if you're a knowledge worker, which to me is everybody, you need to be on your own CEO. So if you're your own CEO, it means I shouldn't be demanding that you do things. I should be asking you. I should be collaborating with you. So again, the demand is that fear-based leadership, and the collaboration is that high-trust, um, high-productivity leadership. So for individuals and organizations, one of the best predictors we've seen of an effective culture is low turnover, right? So if people are leaving all the time, uh, then something is just not right, right? So most people do not leave because of salary. They leave because of the social aspects of work. Um, so let's fix those things. Again, key leverage point. If you're not thinking about culture, which is the humans, if you're not thinking about that, you're just giving up a ton of uh, profits and productivity. I think a lot of organizations uh, just like to excuse it by saying, well, that's our industry. We have a high turnover industry. Right. And there's always exceptions in every industry yeah. of an organization that you know has a high trust environment with very low turnover. Yeah, exactly right. And that was the story, particularly things like investment banking and under-hour work weeks and uh, management consulting. But even in those industries, we've seen partially uh, because of the very low unemployment rate, partially because of the... Uh, millennials really demanding much more uh, work-life integration and, and um, you know, having reasonable hours. People are just saying, no, uh, you know what? I'd rather work for myself than do the 100-hour work week. Um, again, there are times when you have to do that. So um, something I like a lot uh, that Boston Consulting Group does, which is really a, a wonderfully run company in many levels uh, and highly profitable, is they have something called a red card. So if you work two 60-hour weeks in a row, then you get a red card from your supervisor, and you have a meeting that says, hey, uh, Diana, we don't think this is sustainable. Uh, so, um, you know, wh- why did you have to put in so many hours? Uh, well, this project was overdue, and one of my team members is out sick. And, okay, there, there are times when you may have to do that. But the supervisor wants to work with that, uh, with that consultant so that he or she is not consistently doing 60-hour work weeks. Um, they just don't want you there, and they don't want you there at all Sunday. So if you have to work on Saturday, maybe, but no Sunday, you got to get a day off. you got to recharge and refresh because if you've gotten to Boston Consulting Group or Google or Amazon, you've gone through so many hoops to get there. We want you to stay here long term. You're a high performer. That's why you got hired. Let's not burn you out in two years. Uh, so I think all that is starting to change for the better. 
The other example you had in your book that I really loved is a hospital started uh, giving out bracelets like lavender bracelets to people when they were going through a personal hard time. Maybe they hadn't slept. Maybe they have a new baby. Maybe somebody died in their family. And so if they're wearing the bracelet, it means like proceed with caution. Something is wrong. Just be nice to me today. And I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's so human, right? I mean, at some of you think this was Cleveland Clinic, which is probably the best run hospital in the United States uh, and also profitable. Um, so at Cleveland Clinic, you know, they, they have created a culture of care. Now, don't you want to be cared about at work? Why at work do I have to be a robotic automaton with no feelings? Ah, you know what? Things happen at work, outside of work. And if you're having a, a you know, day that's not so great and I need a little extra care, why not uh, signal that? So, again, from a supervisory perspective, one thing I, I talked about in the book, which has worked very well for me, is instead of doing that oh, so uh, superficial greeting when you walk in the door in the morning at work, like, oh, hi, Dana, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay, good. You can just fill in the emotion you see in that person's face. Hi, Diana, good morning. Gosh, you look happy, sad, worried, uh, stressed, uh, joyful, and it changes the whole conversation. So you can read those emotions fairly well from people's faces. And um, when you do that, now we get to a much more intimate conversation about you as a human being. And maybe I don't need to put on the purple ribbon that says I need a little extra care today, but I can see um, that, hey, you're, you're just not doing so well today. So my question as a supervisor is, you need to be here. Can you check in with your team and go home? Oh, your kid was up all night with a flu. Gosh, you know, you don't, don't feel like you can, you can even work at half speed. Why don't you go home and uh, rest up, you know, check in with your team, make sure things are moving forward. Come back tomorrow when you've got some rest. I'd much rather have that person be at 100% tomorrow than trying to work two 50% days, right? So uh, it, it changes the entire equation when you think about frontline employees as those who are primarily creating value for the organization. Right? The old view, again, the sort of Jack Welsh 1.0 was, I'm the CEO, damn it, I, I'm the person who creates value. Really? Really? How many engines did Jack Welsh uh, you know, assemble and sell? Um, so I think it, it's this kind of flipped pyramid, you know, upside down pyramid kind of thing where I really want to empower everybody in the organization to be successful. And when I do that, I as a leader will also be successful. Well, this is fantastic feedback for managers and people who lead others. But what if I'm on a team and there isn't a lot of oxytocin being released and I don't have the power? What should I do uh, besides giving your book to my manager <laughs> in a non-threatening way? Hey, we should start right. with this book for book club. What, what can I do to increase oxytocin on my team? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one, uh, you know, the easiest thing is... Um, see if you can switch out of the team, right? If it's not working for you, that's a great discussion to have, have with the supervisor. Like this team, just we just don't seem to be working together. So at Google, the average team stays together for three weeks. So they want to induce some chaos so that they're able to uh, facilitate innovation, but also so that people learn to work together very effectively. Um, so again, some teams stay together longer, some are actually shorter. Um, so think about rotating through teams. So again, in my group, we do that all the time. We build teams around projects. If those teams are not hitting milestones, just change them. So the first thing is you're not stuck on a team forever, uh, number one. Number two, you can certainly do this from bottom up. So uh, great examples in the book of um, individuals, uh, really frontline kind of uh, almost entry-level individuals uh, who 
changed the whole culture just by doing, you know, initiating kindnesses. Uh, so uh, one of the best-run software companies is a SAS Institute in North Carolina, and they famously uh, buy, uh, uh, you know, a couple of tons of M&Ms per year because a thousand years ago when they started in the 70s, um, some, some team was working late, and one of the administrators, who no one really knows who it is, just bought a bowl of M&Ms and put it in the table because they knew these people were working late on a project. And then they started realizing, oh, just, just having some snacks there is a really nice thing. Now, that's pretty common now for well-run companies to have a snack room. Um, but you can design the, the physical space and um, for interactions or social interactions. Uh, Pixar did this uh, famously uh, when, when Steve Jobs helped design the building. So there's one entrance and exit. So everyone's going to bump into each other and uh, have those, those natural collisions and conversations. Uh, by the way, the, the uh, possibly apocryphal story is that Steve Jobs also at Pixar wanted just one women's bathroom and one men's bathroom. So you had to run into, into each other uh, going into the bathroom. And the architects just said, hey, there's too many people working here. We just can't do that. <laughs> That's not legal. So, um, so really facilitating interactions. So it can start on the smallest level. Uh, and, and it's interesting. When I go into businesses and we collect data on trust within the culture, and we find, you know, divisions or departments that, you know, really have low trust, nobody is surprised. They all know that this is not uh, a functioning uh, cooperative group. And um, so, you know, when we when we look at doing interventions to raise trust, um, again, those are all employee-centric. It's about reducing the natural frictions that we have being around other people. It's just, it's just natural uh, to, you know, have some frictions. Can you give me a time period, like it feels like if you've lost trust in a one-on-one relationship, it's really hard to get it back. How long does it take to create trust on a, on a team that doesn't really have it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's quite variable. It can be, you know, as, as fast as uh, doing this kind of radical change, do it very quickly, and it can be as slow as never. Um, so I think um, what we found through interventions is that uh, if there's buy-in from supervisors, from leadership, it's much easier to make this change, right? Uh, again, no one will be surprised. Um, so having said that, a very small change can facilitate trust very quickly. Um, so we've seen this in um, uh, in hospitals, for example. work with a number of hospitals, uh, which tend to be very hierarchical, right? There are doctors, and there are nurses, and there are techs, and we all know who wears different color scrubs and you know who's got a white coat on. Um, but once you empower uh, frontline employees, that is those working directly with patients, to um, make decisions based on their training and their abilities, and then you know check in, you can change that quite rapidly. Oh, fitness trackers, let me compare thee. I used to have a Fitbit, and every day it would tell me how sad I was that I was nowhere near my step count. I used to have an Apple Watch. And honestly, I have no idea what it was tracking. It had those rings and they were very confusing. And I always forgot to turn it on when I was doing any kind of activity. And now I have a whoop and I haven't had any other device that changed my behavior on such a regular basis all the time. I was going to work out today, but I was like not feeling very good. And my whoop is like, do not work out today. And now it's late at night. And I'm so glad I didn't because I probably would have hurt myself today. We're not the only ones. Whoop users have reported improved sleep, drinking less alcohol, having fewer injuries, and reduced resting heart rate and heart rate variability. It's given us like a whole new way to talk about things, like not just each other's rest and recovery according to the whoop, but also like if true is kind of cranky, like I'll say, you know, 
he didn't get that much sleep. Like if he had a whoop, his recovery would be like 20. <laughs> and and so we we now are describing other people's behavior based on if they had a whoop. Like that's how much has entered our lexicon. It's incredibly personalized to you. This morning, my whoop told me that I go to bed earlier whenever I share a bed with Jason, as opposed to when I'm out of town and traveling. And I've never had any kind of tracker before that n- knows me at that kind of level. It also tells you like when you should go to bed. So like as you get closer to bedtime, uh, it'll give you an alert like, okay, this is the time you said you're getting up tomorrow morning and this is how much sleep you still need. This is the time you need to go to bed, which makes me way more likely to do it. Whoop has provided an offer for our listeners to get 15% off your purchase with the code Diana. Just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com and use the code Diana at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way you live. You have this interesting line in the book. It's a research study that showed that over half of all change management implementations fail because the managers won't model the behavior. And it seems like the manager's role is very big in creating trust on a team. So do you have any advice for how how difficult it is, but what managers can do to embrace it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, oftentimes, uh, we see these radical changes in culture when a transformative leader comes in. So it's not to say if you're in an organization, you can't institute greater trust. Uh, uh, the first thing is communication clear goals, and as I said earlier, the why question. Here's why we're doing this. I'm really um, treating people like like adults. Uh, you know, how about that for a change? Um, so I think you can change that behavior. So in the book, I talk about uh, Michael Dell at Dell Computer, um, who, uh, you know, maybe is a bit socially impaired, but was a, was a, was a yeller, very driven guy, and obviously been very successful. Um, but no one wanted to work with him. His, his turnover was, uh, was really high in his senior staff. And no one would tell him why. Just people were quitting. They just couldn't take it. Um, so uh, he got an executive coach. And he was very clear about that. Uh, she was written up in uh, HBR, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. You can find the article. Um, you know, he just said, I need to get better at this. And one way he did that was to put reminders on his desk. So one of those was a big plastic ear that reminded him to listen more and talk less. Uh, one was an elephant that uh, reminded him to think before he spoke. So again, uh, people who are very successful um, often, um, uh, you know, they've been successful because they've been very driven and, and they've made good decisions. Um, but particularly as organizations get larger, now you don't know every little bit that, of things that are going on. So you really need to aggregate that information. So um, create an opportunity uh, as a leader to uh, aggregate that information. And if you can't do it yourself, get an executive coach, get someone from the outside they're just to help you get better at the thing you really want to do anyway. Well, this seems like a lot of work and very difficult work for individuals to do. Can can you give us the business case for why focusing on trust and oxytocin are important? Yeah, that's exactly the bottom line, right? So it's it's got to be good for humans, that is the employees, but at another level, it's got to be good for the organization. So um, last year, we surveyed uh, around 1,500 uh, working adults in the U.S., and we have them fill out our survey and organizational trust, and we can pair organizations with high levels of organizational trust with those with low levels, the top quartile to the bottom quartile. We found that those working in the top quartile had 100% more energy at work, were 50% more productive, 
They enjoyed their job 60% more. Uh, retention was 50% higher in these high-trust organizations. Um, the chronic stress was lower. Uh, so all these kind of things that you want, job satisfaction, fewer sick days. Uh, we even found that people working in high-trust organizations are more satisfied with their lives outside of work. So if you're working in a place that's beating you up, um, you know, your health suffers, uh, your happiness suffers at work and outside of work, that doesn't sound like a place I want to keep working at. So, um, yeah, so it's a real business case. And, again, to me, it's, it's an absolute leverage point. You know, once you've kind of optimized your supply chain, once you've optimized how you sell your product, once you've worked out all the, the business processes, um, you know, people sort of forget about the, those at work, the, the individuals who are, again, creating value. So it's really creating an environment where they can flourish, and if they flourish, the organization will flourish, if you point them in the right direction. So, again, two key components. One is knowing why, why you're doing what you're doing. I call that purpose. And the second is doing that with a reliable team, a trusted team. So what we see is high-trust, high-purpose organizations are extraordinarily productive, profitable, and they survive for the long term. And innovative. You cannot have innovation without trust. Absolutely. And you can't survive in the long term if you're not innovating, right? Yeah, innovation requires taking risk. And if I'm going to get screamed at because something didn't work out right, my brain tags that. So, so screaming is, is the fear is tagged as, a, as um, pain in the brain. And so if it's painful for me to try something that doesn't work, what am I going to do? I'm going to avoid pain. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to innovate at all. So um, yeah, so you really got to have this sort of continuous innovation. And by the way, small teams are much better for that than big teams. So uh, another really well-run company, uh, WR Gore, makes Gore-Tex, a whole bunch of other great products. Um, they uh, keep their teams, uh, sorry, their their uh, office or, or factories to 150 people. So 150 is about as many people as uh, most people can can know on a personal basis. Um, so yeah, once once that organization, you know, that factory, that office gets over 150, they split it out and, and make a new one. Uh, hmm. Enterprise Software does the same thing. They keep their offices under 25. Their their rental offices gets over more than 25. That's hard to manage. So let's spin one out and start a separate office. So small is beautiful. How about that? You also have a very interesting take on annual performance reviews that they aren't creating the right chemical releases in our brains and they should be replaced with something completely different. So in, in this kind of a, a high-trust, empowered um, uh, culture that I'm, I'm advocating, uh, or we've discovered is very uh, useful, um, I'm giving that employee feedback all the time, me as a supervisor. Right? I'm giving you feedback. Are you hitting milestones? Um, is this team working effectively? Should we switch you into a different team? And so waiting a year to give you feedback uh, is a lifetime from the brain's perspective. Feedback has got to be constant and, um, and, and, you know, hopefully constructive at most times. So we have repurposed that annual review that everyone hates um, into, uh, which is typically backward-looking, here's what you did in the last year, into the forward-looking we call whole-person review. Let's talk about your professional goals. Let's talk about your personal goals. Let's talk about your goals outside of work and family. What else do you like to do? Do you have a hobby? Do you have uh, uh, another passion that you want to uh, pursue? All that should be worked into the conversation because I want to. If you are a high performer, I want to keep you here. So let's talk about a forward-looking set of goals. And sometimes those goals are not with us. Um, uh, I've had uh, employees who chat with me. They say, "You know what? I, I've had really great time here, but um, my spouse uh, works in Silicon Valley. I need to move there, or I feel like I've learned as much as I can, and, and my dream job would be at Facebook or at Google." 
Um, and my response always is, awesome, I'm invested in you. You're a high performer. I want you in my network for the rest of my life, even if you don't work for me. Um, yeah, I know people on Facebook. Um, what group do you want to work with? I'll make some phone calls for you. And why would I do that? Now I got a guy at Facebook or a lady at Facebook, right? So if I'm going to do a project with them, one of the people I trained is already there, or they may come back to me after a couple of years with a bunch of training that Facebook paid for. So um, I think in this world of uh, a limited number of high performers, we want to create an environment for them to f- perform at their best. And, um, and we want to separate out that constant feedback from the salary issue, right? So uh, many uh, very well-run companies just have basic salary levels. And a lot of companies not just publish that. Here's our, our salary formula. And uh, this, you know, there's three different levels, A, B, and C. If you live in New York or London, you get a bump because it's more expensive to live there. And uh, otherwise, it's just really clear. So it's not about the money. It's about doing something cool uh, in the world with people that I can trust. And that's really motivating. You've had this great line in the book that I've since used, that my job is to help you get your next job. Yeah. I used that with somebody I worked with yesterday, and I think she started blushing and was very excited about it. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, it's a small world, right? At, at the world we live in now, we all know each other, right? It's like one degree of separation. So, um, so you know, two takeaways from that. Don't screw people over because everyone's going to know, number one. And number two, just try to be a better human, right? So if you're a better human in general, including at work, then people are going to want to work work really hard for you. So I mentioned earlier that this fear-based approach in the brain, people acclimate to that pretty, pretty rapidly. But the oxytocin approach, we tune, uh, that is released more and more oxytocin, the more uh, um, the safer we feel in an environment, the more we feel that we're empowered and trusted. And so, um, you know, oxytocin is associated with bonding to others and attachment. So, you know, you literally die for people that you love. So let's, let's create some love at work and create an environment where um, love in the philia sense, right, where I, I'm really invested in you as a human being and I want you to be successful. And guess what? If you're successful... Our organization is successful, and if I'm a supervisor, I'm going to look brilliant. So um, let's make that world happen. I love it. You gave some great advice on how to greet people differently. Can you give me some things I can do for the rest of the day to create some oxytocin in the people I interact with? That's a great question. So um, let's just start with this, the simplest stuff ever. Please and thank you. So if you supervise people and you're demanding, you have to do this. Let's, Let's flip that, right? Because, again, these are individuals who are creating value. I say, Diana, would you mind, would you be able to work on this accounting project? I'm sure you're busy with other things, but um, we really need your expertise in this area. And generally say, yeah, okay, I'll fit that in. Or, or I don't think I can do that because I've got this other project. So, okay, let me see if I can have someone else pick up the other project. So start with please and thank you. And then you finish that, say, thank you. I'm, I'm sure you put a lot of effort into this. I can't wait to see what you did. And uh, I really appreciate it. So, um, you know, having some gratitude and then recognizing that, Every knowledge worker has options outside of your organization. And so please and thank you goes really far. Um, if you're in the appropriate kind of organization and you feel comfortable doing this, um, you can have the people who work with It's <laughs> fine. Uh, I spent some time um, at the container store, uh, very, another very well-run company. And uh, as I said, I hug everybody. And I walked in, and before I even said anything, I noticed that this was one of their annual meetings, that they were hugging each other. They are all hugging each other. I'm like, oh, these are my people, right? This is a very warm environment. So um, you can do that. Uh, it, it's a great hack. Again, you want to do it appropriately. So I pre-announce. 
I'll say, oh, I hug everybody. And every once in a while, I get someone who has social anxiety, and they're like, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm like, all right, that's fine. I can shake hands. Um, but, you know, create that warm environment where people want to connect to you. And I, we're, we're all busy. We're busy at work. Um, but I think the reason people listen to your podcast and the reason you talk to people like me is to get new ideas. And one of those new ideas is treat people like you really care about them. And, you know, I could say really do care about them. About right. that. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> hack. Just care about them. Thank you till you make it. How about right. that? Uh, Paul, where can people follow you and all the new research that you're putting out? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, my website is pauljzack.com. Um, you can find links to my businesses there. Uh, I'm at Claremont Graduate University in California. Lots of things you can download on my website. And if you're interested in organizational trust, uh, the website for that is ofactor.com, O-F-A-C-T-O-R.com. Uh, there's a free survey people can use and assess trust in your own organization. So how about some, some free tools? That's awesome. We will link everything in the show notes. And I'm so very grateful for you coming on the show and sharing all of this with us. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Jesse, what did you think of Paul Zach? Whoa. Mind blowing. <laughs> you texted me that when you were listening to it. I did. It. With a heart and a mind blown emoji. <laughs> what were your biggest takeaways? My biggest takeaway is that my last job, we worked in the events industry and people were like, well, there isn't very high turnover, but we created this environment where oxytocin was continually being released and we had no idea. People were bringing candy. We were having family meal and bringing in dinner for everyone. I was constantly hugging everyone and asking <laughs> if we could hug it out. <laughs> Super interesting. I think that was one of the biggest takeaways for me is that you can't just do it once and then like you can't give everybody annual bonuses and be like, we're good till next year. Yeah. You have to continuously think about releasing oxytocin on a regular basis. And I compare it to like in your relationship with your significant other, you can't just have like one annual event where you're like, well, we've gone to dinner together. So I'll see. Uh, we'll Checked the box. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're just back to functioning great for the next year. So you have to think about showing appreciation and releasing that oxytocin mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Yeah, it's a practice of gratitude even in the workplace. What else? Uh, my other takeaway is that there are people who ask me, what can I do to make my workplace better? And this to me was like, there are little small things that we can do. Even if you're not the business owner, there are little small things like hugging people or um, offering to bring lunch in for your team that make a huge difference in um, the neurochemistry of our brains. I heard the best exercise this week, which was somebody on a big team, what they do is at the beginning of their weekly or monthly meeting, one person will thank somebody else in the room. Like each person thanks one person and they keep going around and around until everybody's been thanked hmm. for something. And that's just how they started off. And boy, what an incredible way to release some oxytocin. Seriously. I love that. Yeah. Anything else that you learned from the episode? It was just super great. Now I'm thinking about how I can go and release oxytocin for other people. Everywhere. I've never so cool. thought about like, you know, Jesse's coming over to record this thing. <laughs> what kind of brain chemicals am I going to release in her time here? And when you do, you act differently. Totally. So for everybody who wants to continue our conversation, tell us your biggest takeaways, whether you work in an office that releases oxytocin or does not. 
Please share. We'd love to hear your stories on the Facebook group. It's called Professional AF Podcast Insiders. It is a growing community of people who like to talk about these episodes, help me ask really good questions on upcoming interviews. We would love for you to to join us there. And if you would please share this episode with whoever you think needs to listen to it, I highly recommend making it a team group listen to talk about how you're doing this or not doing this in the workplace. And would love for you to uh, share online with your biggest takeaways. I just want to remind everybody that curiosity is your superpower. Use it well this week. Talk to you soon.